the guys from Ping, they've kind of shown me how much the equipment matters. I just love that I can hit any shot I kind of want. We're going to be able to tell some fun stories about what goes on here to help golfers play better golf. Welcome back to the Ping Proving Grounds podcast. I'm Shane Bacon. That is Marty Jertson. And this is a very, very important thing to tell you off the bat. If you're listening to the podcast, pause the podcast for a moment and then open it back up on YouTube. Because I will say, Marty, it's going to be a visual medium today. Rob Griffin is with us. We are in the archive room. Rob, this is where I would say the magic happens, but the magic has been happening for a long time. How long have you been at Ping? And how many golf clubs do you feel like are in the archive room right now? Well, I've been at Ping since 1986. Um, I did leave for three years, but I came back. And when I started, I was the company's photographer. So I shot all kinds of stuff for the company, tour events. I thought I was going to shoot a lot of tour events. Turned out I shot more product than anything. But then uh, I left in 2002. I uh, came back in 2005. My hair had turned white, so they said I could be the historian. <laughs> that was that was all it took on the so, resume. Yeah, uh, it's gotten a little wider. You can do. Uh, you can get the archive room. You can have that. What's what do the clubs date back to? I mean, you're talking like I've I was looking around us before we got going, and I was picking out clubs I played when I was a junior golfer. Right. What year are some of these clubs dating back to? Well, as, as far back as maybe late '58, 1959. Unbelievable. And how many there are in here, I don't know exactly, but... You can guess. We're going to count. Guess. Yeah, there's more than a few thousand. Okay. And we we actually have three other rooms over in another building. And in one of those rooms is full of clubs, so there's probably... What year do they push you, do they push you to that room, like on an well, office space situation? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> pushing you down the ranks in yeah. another room. No, but... That's over there where there's no there's no heater cooling. That's right. Okay. Okay. You don't want to be there in the summer. You don't want to be there in the summer. But that's where most of the wooden woods are, actually, which is not a good, maybe not the best thing, but that's where most of the wooden woods are. Rob, I think uh, one thing that us engineers um, have heard a lot of stories about through the family, through John Solheim, when we're working on product development, is uh, about Karsten, the originator. Um, give a little insight to the listener about him maybe some of the fun pro i mean i love looking at some of the from fun prototypes that he made or welded together tried you know had had his technicians go make real quickly give us a little insight into uh karsten and what made him tick well karsten's whole thing was he was trying to make the game of golf easier for the average player that was his whole goal in life was to build a golf club that would make the game easier to play he was a great problem solver, always trying to think how to improve his golf club or design a new putter, things like that. So, you know, there's a driver up here that's a square, stainless steel square driver. And, you know, he just wanted to see how, will that work? And I know when he was working on that with uh, Greg Schmidt, one of our engineers, mm-hmm. you know, Greg told him, he says, Karsten, that's going to cowbell. And, and uh, sure enough, it did. But Karsten said, "No, it's it's okay. Let's let's try it anyway." And they tried it, and sure enough, it it it, it made a cowbell sound. It was pretty loud. I mean, but I mean, you're talking about a square driver that was built in the '90s, in yeah, the, or probably sometime in the early '90s. In the early '90s. So you know, you think about the innovation of golf and how we go through these ebbs and flows with certain designs. I mean, Marty's been you know so influential in that over the last 20, 25 years, but. Some of these things that you have on these racks, I mean, you're showing me an upside down putter right, yeah. from, from years ago. A lot of the ideas were just simply, will this work or will this not yeah, work? Yeah, let's see what happens. You know, Alan even told me one time that when Alan had an idea, Karsten would ask him, have you tried doing it just backwards of that? Have mm. you tried doing that 180 degrees just to see what happens? Yeah, I think Karsten was the originator of what we're still doing today, which is trying things, fail, and learn from your failures, right? And uh, he really started us on that journey, Rob. Uh, And it it is fun to look at all the, well, you could call it a failure, but quote unquote, you know, failures that are learnings that we've, you know, continued to build upon. Right. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't afraid to fail. He wasn't afraid for something not to work. 
how did the process of starting an archive room begin? Because I can only imagine you had a lot of these things laying around somewhere, and you might as well display what you're saying, 70 years of golf clubs in this room? Right. Well, <clears throat> what the way the original idea of this started in the mid-'90s, and we had a historian. Uh, her name was Don Wingert, and she had, she had actually been John's assistant, uh, administrative assistant for a while, quite a while. And uh, so she became the first historian, and she did a lot of great work. I fall back on stuff that she's found, and she kind of did the initial organization of it. And a lot of the putters that I have are because she went up to shipping and grabbed a bunch of putters. <laughs> You know, we need this for the archive room. Right. Like like these white putters over here, which we didn't sell very – we hardly ever sold. I'm almost positive that she went up to shipping, and they were up there, and she says, I'll take all those. Stuff like that. So she really got us start. you know, she's the one that got it started. So much of what I have done since then, I've fallen back on stuff that she had done. Yeah. Rob, I think um, one of the, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about is how influential Louise was <laughs> in uh, the entire company, especially some of the 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 naming of the answer putter. Right. Um, she was uh, well, a lab technician for for in in the research industry. Well, uh, aerodynamics. Yeah. Actually, she worked for Convair, and she worked in the wind tunnel. And her job title was computer. Just computer. 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 There you go. She was a math whiz, and so her job was to take the data that these engineers got from the wind tunnel and to somehow or other condense it into something they could really use. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that's one of the jobs she had. Um, and then later on when they were in New York, she actually worked for a government agency, the Dairy Board or something like that. And so, you know, she... She was very smart uh, in terms of Karsten and Louise. I always tell people this, that if Karsten had married a different young lady, we probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah, She was that important to what we did. She came to work every day just like Karsten did. And she was more the personal touch with the employees and things like that. Yep. And yes, yeah, she, she named some of the putters, including the answer, famously the answer putter. Um, was so, it, is the story on that, it was, it was drop a letter to make it right. make, fit on the putter. Was that how it went? Yeah. So Karsten, you know, Karsten came home from, uh, the LA open in January of 66 and Arnold Palmer's putter was most popular putter out there at the time, the 8802. And so Karsten came home and he told Louise he needed to find an answer to Arnie's putter. So within days... Karsten had a drawing, he had a sample, and it was get, he needed to go to the engraver to have the plates engraved to put the name on the putter. This started a few days before he had to go, and he said, you know, I need a name for my putter. And she says, why don't you just call it the answer, because it's your answer to Arnie's putter. He said, well, that's no name for a putter. <laughs> and, you know, so they went so back one, and... F one of his few whiffs, by the way, <laughs> and considering what that name has done in the lineage of Ping. Exactly. So they went back and forth a couple of days, and then the morning that he was supposed to go, he had his appointment to go to the engraver. He, they woke up and, you know, he said, you know, I, I still need a name for this putter. And she said, I told you, call it the answer. And he goes, well, that's too long. It won't fit. And she said, well, drop the W. It'll sound the same anyway. And there you go. And there you have it. Yeah. How do you law? So you, you're, you're talking initially in terms of archival stuff. It was go grab a club and let's put this to the side so we don't forget about this putter or this prototype. I'm assuming that process is a little bit more computerized, if you will, these days. How do you go about making sure every club from Ping is in the room, every new club gets a spot in your room? I place an order just like a customer. Okay. That's literally what I do because I had tried other ways people would say oh yeah I can get you that I can get you that and it never it wouldn't show up half the time and so we just went to the idea of just 
we'll place an order just like a customer. And, and if you need a new driver, do you just place two? Is that kind of how it goes? You just say, I actually need two of those drivers? For myself. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, just I got to have just an extra one just in case. Doesn't quite work. That's not how it goes? They, they, they keep an eye on that? My badge doesn't let me walk out the door with a club. <laughs> Mar Marty, when you look around this room, I mean, you see clubs that you designed. I mean, yeah. how cool is that to kind of you know, see your clubs that you started as, you know, mocking on a paper and working on a computer to next to the square driver from the 90s or the white putters that maybe didn't make the team. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And, and one of the funnest projects I had were, um, you know, coming into the archives and learning and getting the history uh, was working on the answer iron. So we worked on a forged iron that had a milled cavity in the back, okay. multi-material and the original answer iron we're looking at over here, Rob can kind of tell the story of a little bit, is uh, getting some forged blanks. And then Karsten and Alan, I think, Alan worked on milling. Uh, Alan did a all the milling. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Alan, Alan did all the milling on the forged. They'd get the forged blanks uh, for the 69 irons, which was the first model that they did. They got the heads from uh, Golfcraft. Yeah. And uh, Golfcraft became Titleist. But they got the heads from Golfcraft. They'd get them here. Then Alan would mill out the cavities. It had a dual cavity. That one did. And then, um, you know, to Karsten's design. And then they would send the, had to send the heads back to Golfcraft to be chromed. Then they'd come back here and they'd weigh out the heads and so they could put them into sets. And that cavity made them more forgiving. More Give forgiving. Him a higher right. moment of inertia. That's what I loved about Carson is A, he was not afraid to try some wild ideas. And B, he he thought from a a physics based kind of first principles uh, approach. Uh, Rob, I want to go back to that Louise a little bit working in the wind tunnel because um, fast forward to golf club design. Yes. Um, we, I'm looking at the turbulator design that we developed in a wind tunnel. Right. And having that kind of in our company DNA, Karsten and John wanted to test drivers for aerodynamics. They thought if we could make it more aerodynamic, a golfer could swing it faster. Tell us the story uh, about developing wood woods and testing the, the driver aerodynamics. So, uh, yeah, when Karsten first decided he was going to build his own wooden wood. Um, you're right. He wanted it to be aerodynamic, swing it faster, hit it farther, was his idea, of course. And so he checked into, you know, he had worked on his design, then he checked into having it tested in a wind tunnel. And there was two problems. One was it was expensive. The second one was the deal breaker, and that was it was going to be several months before they could get him in line to have it tested. And also, if he had to do a redesign, it's still going to be longer after that. So Karsten was not the most patient person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so he decided he'd figure out how to do his own wind tunnel testing. So what he did is he got ahead and he put a short shaft in it. And he attached a spring gauge to it, kind of like you'd weigh a fish with. Only probably a little higher tech than that, yep. but a spring gauge like a machinist might use. And uh, he got Alan, and they got in the family car, and they went down to Bell Road down here, which is a few miles north of here. And uh, Alan's job was to drive the car exactly 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and in those days, the only thing out there was the horse track. Okay. So Alan's job was to drive the car 100 <laughs> miles an hour, Karsten would hold the club out the window with the spring gauge and turn it and watch how the gauge moved, maybe make some notes, I suppose, and then they come back, work on it a little more, and go back and do it again. And so that's how he did his wind tunnel testing. And, you know, I asked Alan, they, so they did this in a Citron automobile, which Karsten loved Citron automobiles because they were such high-tech yeah. cars for the time. And uh, the one that they used, we believe, maybe had a Maserati engine in it. But uh, Alan said it's great to get to drive the you know family car 100 miles an hour, <laughs> except that if he didn't drive it exactly 100 miles an hour, Karsten would yell at him. <laughs> Rob, do you look at Marty and you think he needs to do more of this when he's kind of testing out some of his new age stuff, <laughs> or maybe get behind a wheel of a car, yeah, get well. the get on a bicycle or a motorcycle and just see how fast he can go with the club in hand? Or do you like the way he goes about his business these I, days? As far as I know, he goes. He, he knows what he's doing. Perfect. As uh, far as I know. 
Uh, Rob, we have so many unbelievable items. I know you've picked out a few that you really like, and a reminder to everybody, watch this part of the podcast because it's going to be important. But do you have any clubs that you can pull out or any of the ones that, you, you know, that you've pulled aside that are really notable? Yeah, so I thought we'd talk about, you know, since the answer is the, you know, best uh, putter in the history of golf. And so this, this is the hand drawing he did for the answer putter, the first drawing. This is his drawing. This is his drawing. He did this drawing. And when I first saw the drawing back in the 90s when they found it in his desk drawer, and they brought it to me so I could photograph it and make copies. And when I first saw it, I thought, that doesn't look like an answer. It looks like the Ping Pal to me. And then um, his second drawing he made uh, two days later. And it's dated and signed. Yep, January 14th, 1966. Right. And then witness the 15th. And uh, on this, you know, so now it's starting to look a little different, the drawing does. And on this drawing it says sample made uh, the 14th, January 14th. And so this is the sample. That he made. So this is from 66. I mean, this is right. the January 14, January, 1966. Yeah, 66. So this started out as a Ping 69 putter, this head. And it even was drilled for a shaft already. Mm-hmm. So he just took one that was already drilled, and then he modified it and, and brazed or welded this answer-style hosel onto it. So that's the, that's the prototype for the answer. Is this the most mimicked golf club in the world? Is that fair to say? I think it is. Okay. Yeah, I think easily. Um, and unfortunately, nowadays, a lot of people don't realize that Karsten invented the answer design. That's why we have the podcast. Yeah. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing we're this. yell at people. Right. <laughs> and then, so this is like one of the very first castings of the answer putter. And uh, we know it's one of the first ones because the, the hosel is much thinner than the answer is yeah. now. Yeah, you can see that, and I think when they got their first casting, they realized Karsten realized that when he put the shaft in and the ball bearing, and he had to drive the ball bearing in to it would bend this. Yeah, yeah. So Marty, as someone that does this now, you know, for your life's work, if you will, <laughs> what is it like looking at things like this from the '60s, thinking what it must have been like, you know, for Karsten and any designer out there having to go about their business in the '60s trying to make golf clubs? I, I think in talking to Rob about the timeline of when Karsten went out and realized there was a, a problem to solve looking at I, his brain was thinking I could bring in some physics here to help the everyday golfer. Right. Right. And how quickly he got that to market was out is absolutely incredible. Yeah. If, if you don't mind me asking you, Marty, how, how long does it take you to go from idea of a golf club, first look at it, and then it's to market. I mean, what's the timeline for you nowadays in 2023? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot longer than Karsten sure. got the answer out into players' hands. I mean, I is mean, it a year, a year and a half? Yeah, okay. yeah, somewhere in that time frame, you know, for like a big scale project. Gotcha. But the fact that he could, you know, put so much effort, passion, and he could make things, get things done, do them, and really bring in these physics principles of, of putting offset, right? I right. mean, that was one of the main things he brought is right. that you can generate stability by creating a, a distance between where the player's going to apply the force through their hands and the center of gravity of the club right. with the plumber's Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Offset was such a – I mean, that's his innovation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, Rob, what's the – let's call it the most unique golf club in the archive room. You could maybe go weirdest. You could go strangest. You could go most different. Now, you did show me the upside-down putter, which is my winner already. Okay, well <laughs> – because I just like the idea of, can we make it upside down? Sure. This is probably the, this is what a lot of collectors feel is the holy grail of ping collectibles. Okay. This is the ping trainer. Uh, this what, one, what's the, do you know, do you know it roughly year for this? This would be from like 62, three. Okay. Um, there's supposed to be a, this one's not quite complete. It doesn't have, there's a wire that comes to a point back here. Okay. Uh, and there's two movable weights here. The idea of the trainer is that where the wire comes to a point, you put a piece of like felt and you dip it in ink. And then on butcher paper, 
you hit some putts and it draws your stroke. Interesting. So when Karsten decided to make his own putter to help his own putting, he wasn't thinking of making putters for, you know, for sale. He was just wanting to help his own putting. You know, he didn't take up the game of golf till he's in his 40s. And putting was the hard part for him, you know, became the hard, you know, decided that was his weak, weak spot. So he took the putter that he had, which was just a simple blade putter, and he, had, he did this wire thing, attached a wire to it. And on butcher paper, he did this little experiment. And what he found out was that no matter how he held the putter, how tightly or any configuration of how he held the putter, if he didn't hit the putt right in the sweet spot of the putter, or the ball right in the sweet part of the putter, the head twisted at impact. And he could see that because of the drawing. He, he could literally see a little squiggle. Okay. And so he decided. that's when he decided that he needed to move the weight to the heel and toe, try to get more weight to the heel and toe. Interesting. So the first thing, you know, he went to one of his friends at GE and asked them to make him a blade, you know, a putter head blade um, out of aluminum. And when he got that, he took it home and somehow or other he milled out or drilled out areas on the sole, big areas, and he filled those with lead to get the weight to the heel and toe. Mm -hmm. And then shafted it up and sure enough it worked. Just a bummer we don't have like video like we have video today of this. I mean, what an unbelievable video this would have been of just like adding lead. I just love the creativity of right. how can we find a solution to a problem, right? right. And I mean, just the hearing the stories is right. basically his life work was finding solutions to right. a problem. Exactly. So the trainer he came out with in 62 so that he could, people could see what he had seen, you know, when he did this. And also, he, he called it the trainer because he suggested that people put the weight in the center and hit putts. And then, after they do that for a little bit, then move it to the heel and toe, and they'd see how much better it was. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think he was thinking he might could do this with a putter, but then he turned out, of course, you can't have, you couldn't have movable weights then. Yeah. Day. So, but it became the trainer. It sold for twenty two fifty. It was in the ads on the magazines and stuff, and he only made one when somebody ordered one. And so, uh, a few years ago, one sold at auction for twenty two thousand five hundred dollars. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> and it's it literally. I don't. We don't know how many he made. Um, my guess is it's less than twenty. Okay. Yeah. So you say Holy Grail? It's really the Holy Grail. Yeah. I mean, there's not many of these for in existence. Collector, for pin collectors, this is one. Of, this is kind of the Holy Grail. Yeah. Carson was such a great storyteller, and he found very unique ways to show the value of the physics that he's uh, right. He's bringing in. Yeah, always. Yeah, you know, he would show the one A putter. Uh, he would demonstrate that to people with two sugar cubes and popsicle sticks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A little, you do a little more than that now, Marty, I yeah. think. Or, or you know, the balnamic shaft. Yep, yep. The balnamic shaft, he would demonstrate to people with a paper clip. He would take a paper clip and bend it like the balnamic shaft and, yeah. to show them how the balnamic shaft worked. I mean, I mean, Marty, it, like we've talked so much about innovation in terms of what you're doing now. And I mean, I'm so impressed with kind of the Ping's ability to push the app world forward. I just yeah. think that what you guys have done and what's coming has been very, very impressive because – you're trying to solve a problem yeah. for the golfer at home. Yeah. The technology's there, but maybe every golfer doesn't understand this. And it feels like, I mean, it's followed the footsteps of Karsten, you know, kind of being under the same roof is maybe it's new age, maybe it's computerized, maybe it's apps, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing. Absolutely. I, we, us in engineering, we talk about that all the time. And, and I think it's Shane's the importance of a lot of us that are designers or working on the product. We play golf. We, Feel the pain of the game, for sure. Just like Karsten, just like Karsten, and we're trying to come in and solve those. You know, it's kind of personal. We want to, if we could solve it for us, we can solve it for everybody. So we draw a lot of inspiration uh, from that, and it, it's it's weaved into the fabric of the the company. Yeah, I mean, John John encourages people like Marty and young engineers to come in here, yeah, and look around. 
just just look, you know. Yeah. Ask some questions. Pull ideas away. I mean, what's right. What's interesting is you were showing me before we got going. I mean, there's seven woods and drivers over there that are 50 inches long, 55 inches long that are probably 30 years old. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. You know. So yeah, we have Wedgie Winchester's five foot long driver that he used <laughs> to win the long drive contest back in the early 80s. Five foot long driver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unreal. So, yeah, we're still trying to figure out driver length fitting today. You know, what's the sweet spot of how long should you go? Will that ever go? extend, Marty? Will it, will it ever get to a place where it's where USGA says it can go longer than, what is it, 45 right now, 44 and a half? Yeah, well, uh, it's 46 is the condition of competition okay. rule. But usually that's only in play with PJ Tour events and things of that nature, but it still remains at 48. So. There are a good number of golfers that do good with over a 46-inch driver because our drivers are so forgiving from a, a moment of inertia standpoint. Rob, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the how the ballnamic shaft, maybe we could take a look at the ballnamic shaft there, and then also how the concept of the pistol grip came to be, right? Hmm. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. We'll talk about the shaft first. The balnamic shaft. So the balnamic shaft is actually have a con it has a compound bend, and uh, it's right here. It's kind of under the grip. It bends towards the player and away from the target, and so it's actually easier to see looking from the other end. So you can see how it it bends, and just like you were talking about offset. Yeah. Karsten's idea was this aligned the player's hands with the ball, not the face of the club. Yep. Uh, it also helps minimize the toe-down effect when you swing the club. And the other thing it does is it, it actually stabilizes the club at impact. So I can demonstrate that. Uh, hold that and let me show you how this works. So if I hold the club you know, lightly between my thumb and finger... And I, you know, kind of, if I hit it in the sweet spot, you know, it's pretty stable. If I start to get out here or to here, it's not as stable. Let's see if I can hang on to it better. There we go. You can see it twist. Now, if I hold this above the bend, and now I hit it on the sweet spot, it's great. And I hit it out here, it's way more stable. Yeah. And you can actually, if you do this yourself, you can feel you can feel that in your fingers. You can actually feel the it vibration. in your hand, the vibration, the yeah. vibration change. So that that's the balnamic shaft, and it and so the one of the first people to play this club with the balnamic shaft was Joel Goldstrand, and he told a story about, you know, he got his set of clubs with the shaft, uh, balnamic shaft, and he went it took his seven iron, he went out to the schoolyard, school's out of session, and he had a shag bag, and he said he started hitting seven irons, and he's out there all by himself, and he said he hit balls for about 15 minutes or so, and he actually picked the club up and looked at it, and he said out loud, this has got to be illegal, because <laughs> he hit the ball so straight. Well, unfortunately, the balnamic shaft did become non-conforming in 67. The USGA changed the rule on shaft uh, bends so that you couldn't have a bend more than five inches from the ground. Yeah, yeah. And so almost all of Karsten's clubs had a bend uh, either here or they had a bend down lower, like the putters all had a bend down lower, kind of a double bend that he mm -hmm. did and stuff. And a lot of those were more than five inches. And so when the rule changed, when the rule went into effect, uh, Karsten didn't have the only club he had that was conforming was the answer putter. So he had to he had to uh, he wanted to make things right for people. So he straightened a lot of shafts and mm. and did a lot of things to make make it right for people. Um, and so it it really literally almost put him out of business. Um, but fortunately, the answer was such a hot seller right away that yeah. it, the answer kind of saved the business, I suppose, in yeah. a way you could say. Yeah. Kind of an answer in more than one way, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rob, do you have a favorite club in here? Like you personally have one? Maybe it's uh, just maybe it's a different looking club. Maybe it's one that not many people know much about. Is there one in here that kind of stands out to you? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite club. I know the, the most favorite club that people like to, like to see – when they come in, 
Whoa. Is a croquet putter. Oh, yes. <laughs> that, you know what? I'm not an engineer. That has a bend in the shaft. Yes, it does. <laughs> Almost positive. By so that. Karsten did this bend himself with, with heat. He had to use heat to get it to bend like this. Let's see if I can get it to... Will it stand up on the right? stand up by itself, yeah. So, yeah. This, so this was, you know, croquet putting was pretty popular there for a while. And one of the reasons the USGA changed the sh bend and shaft rule was croquet putting that was mm, part of it yeah and they also put in the rule that you couldn't straddle the line yes yeah but yeah so this is i don't know if it's my favorite but it's when people come in and i show them things this is a, a big hit yeah they get it. rob one thing to notice on this is the uh oh, the pistol the grip, grip the pistol about. grip yep so give us a little insight into uh how that came to be see that shane let's see this bad boy that's heavy too yeah yeah it is heavy so um, Karsten's first putters, uh, the Redwood City, putters made in Redwood City, uh, they had a leather grip, uh, a leather wrap grip. And they did that, the way they made that grip was they actually had a kind of heavy paper, like craft paper kind of stuff. And with that paper and white glue, they built up an underlisting. Mm -hmm. And so it you had to, you put put a layer on and have to dry overnight and they put another layer have to dry and so it took three or four days to do a shaft to do a grip i mean and and so uh once once they had the underlisting and it was dried up you know dried then uh, they would make a couple of cuts on the table saw shape it a little bit and then alan is the one that normally would wrap the leather around the grip well alan joined the marine reserves and he had to go to boot camp. So he, he did as many grips as he could before he left. So then when they, let, when they ran out of grips, leather grips, they went to this uh, Golf Pride Informer grip. And so John says, yeah, our production time came way down <laughs> when we went to the rubber grip. And so this is the grip that they used on a lot of the putters, uh, a lot of the Scottsdale putters. Yeah. Um, so then <clears throat> Karsten, uh, because of the ball dynamic shaft being, you know, ruled non-conforming, yep. Karsten designed his own grip, the, what we call the PP58 now. Yep. In those days, we just called it the pin grip way back when it was first designed. With that design of that grip, it's not bored through the center. It's, it's bored off center, and it, that grip simulates some of the bend, the balnamic bend. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, the USGA did outlaw pistol grips. They they got so this grip became non-conforming, and that's when Karsten would started designing his grip. And so that grip, um, you can the the thing we did with the shaft, you know what what I did with the balnamic shaft. You can do the same thing with one of our putters and a pin grip. The effect is not quite as much, but you can you can still feel it in your hands. Yeah. So that that grip, that PP fifty eight grip. Uh, and I think you can tell me because I don't know for sure, but most of all of our putter grips are now designed kind of that way, right? Yeah. So we, we, that was Carson's ingenious way, you know, when they changed the rule on the bend in the shaft to get that physics effect, right? right. And now we've done a lot of research, which turns out a lot of the research we do to today, Shane, just, um, Proves what yeah, Carson backs already up Carson's do. ideas. <laughs> so now we use that as a fitting variable that mm -hmm. if we need to change how the putter rotates and match it perfectly to someone's stroke, mm -hmm. we can put them in a grip that has like our PP58 that has more pistol to it that points their hand more towards the center of the uh, the center of the club. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, which is really fun. Yeah, really, it's fun. really, yeah. Rob, you you talk about ordering clubs these days mm -hmm. for the archive room. What do you do about clubs that didn't make it in here in the 60s and 70s, but you want to acquire them. You want to add it to the archive room, but maybe you don't have one here. How do you go about finding those golf clubs and acquiring them? Well, um, generally we will try, if people come to us, I, I don't, I try not to go out looking too much, but people will come to us with something. Okay. 
And I so, mean, do you still get surprised? Like, do you still have people that, that say, I've got this club that you don't have in the room? I, I do. I occasionally do. And it's usually a variation of something. Because early on, Karsten did what a customer wanted. Karsten would do that for, for people sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so occasionally you do get surprised. Um, like there's a putter right here that I don't think Marty's ever seen. So this is a 1A putter. But a fella asked to have one heavier. And so Karsten actually uh, raised another piece of bronze. Oh, yeah. Made it deeper and heavier, and it has a little flange. <laughs> I have not seen that. <laughs> no, right. And so, yeah, so there's this, this came, a guy, you know, called me up and said he had this putter. And so what we, like, what we'd like to do is trade. Okay. You know, trade new equipment. Um, we don't want to purchase outright if we can help it, but sometimes we do. And, uh, you know, another putter that came to us um, was uh, George Answer, George Archer's answer putter um, that we believe is the one he used to win the Masters. Mm. That's, that's, for, that's up for debate, but we believe it is the one that he used to win the Masters. And so, you know, that's one that we, we did buy. Can I ask about the golf ball? Sure. Because nowadays there's a lot of variations of golf balls that are different colors and they have different patterns on them. I mean, this was the OG. This was the original right. golf ball that had different variations of colorways and all that. Right. What was the reasoning for the ping golf ball? Well, Karsten, um, he, he, uh, when he decided he wanted to build his own golf ball, he actually bought a company – uh, True Sphere, I think that's the name of it. He bought them and moved all their equipment, and actually their head engineer designer came and came to work for Karsten. Um, I don't know exactly how he came to the idea of the two color ball, but he called it stroboscopic because he 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 liked the idea you could see it spin. And this is the orange and yellow combination. It was his favorite, and we called it the ping punch. Or he called it the pink mm-hmm. punch. You know, as we went on, you know, we had uh, yellow and white and pink and white and red and white and different standard colors with our customization process that Ping has had for a long time. We started doing uh, custom colors for people. We would try to match a color to somebody's logo, and we also could pad print logos on golf mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, this yep. is, I mean, again, like in 2023... This is what you're seeing. What and you're I mean, you're seeing. talking. And we were doing this back in the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. Right. Uh, but anyway, so the two color balls are very collectible, some of them. And the, depending on the color and stuff, people get all carried away about it. The ball collectors are different than the club collectors. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you got to deal with both parties. Yeah, sometimes. we The, the ball collectors have kind of – I. I understand they're, they want to know how many colors we made, and we don't know because we were custom mixing colors yeah. to match logos right. and stuff. And so we, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so the two-color ball was uh, – and it's a great putting aid, as you guys probably know. And uh, I, I, will, I will draw mine. So I will get the tool and draw half a golf ball with yeah. a Sharpie. I mean, I know they sell golf balls now that you can do that with. But, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, will, I will do that. I'll also make my four-year-old do it too, and it's not a straight <laughs> – a, a so little wonkier. Before they, before anybody else was doing the two-color ball like they are now, um, when Lee Westwood came here for a visit one time, uh, been I don't know maybe ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. And one of the thing, he, when he was here, he asked for he asked for a two-color ball for practice. Want, for practice. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so, yeah, so we found him one. <laughs> Rob, Rob, fast forward to today. Uh, well, Carson was kind of famous he has a video where where he's famous for saying that um you know the golf ball is like the tuning fork for us right it tells us what to do on right. the clubs right and so fast forward to today we we uh, made a golf ball fitting right. app software mm-hmm. solution you know inspired by the name ball dynamic i know the you know right. just golf balls flight right karsten sure. yeah. aerodynamics let's bring it all in <laughs> yeah. and so that that's how we kind of have that name for our ball dynamic fitting software but he knew the importance of marrying ball and club together right, right. And, and it's funny you say that because just the other day john said something to me where he said well you know the the golf ball is what 
you know, because I asked him about the golf ball. I asked him how he what he felt about like the golf ball being cut. You know, the USGA wanting yeah. to cut back on yeah. the flight or the distance and all that sort of stuff. And he said, "Well, the the ball is our, is our tuning fork." Mm. He used the same phrase that, yeah. that Carson yeah. used. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it, it's really interesting. And your ball app is is pretty cool. Yeah. When James Lee fit me over there for clubs, we went through the ball. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Marty Absolutely. will run you through it. Um, <laughs> we've talked about acquiring clubs and finding golf clubs. Are there clubs that are missing? Do you have any Do you have any clubs that you could – I mean, this is a PSA. It's a yeah. podcast, for goodness sakes. So, Let the people know what we need. <laughs> what we need. Well, yeah, we are mi- – we're missing – we have some holes. We have a few holes. Um, one of them – and most of the older stuff I have, although I'll say any – I will say any older – club redwood city address club or scottsdale address club i'm always interested in seeing pictures because karsten did do variations just like i showed you um so i'm always interested in those as far as one that's missing from my from our collection i don't have a ping 69 w putter with a scottsdale address okay Mm. i've got them with phoenix address i don't have one with a scottsdale address but the putters i'm actually missing is because, um, like I mentioned, Don Wingert, and she was here, and then she wasn't here, and then I didn't start doing this until two, two, 2005. In that period of time, new putters that came out, we didn't get them all. So, so some yeah. mo- you're saying some more modern More clubs. modern. So G2 putters, G2i, G5i putters, all of those. I, I have some of those, but not all of them. And there oh, was yeah. a number of those models. Yeah, there were, yeah, we had a lot right. of models that, right so, in there. So, yeah, that's something that we're so, – so, I mean, I know I'm joking about a PSA, but if somebody had a club and they were interested in showing it to you, how do they get a hold of you? Oh, they can just they can just call the main number. Um, main ping customer service customer number. Customer service number. They can ask to speak to me. Yeah. Um, can I call and just ask to speak to you every now and again just to of chat? Or, okay, we're just making sure that's okay. Maybe you'll give me, I'll even give you my I was going to say, we could actually maybe get the direct line after the pod. Yeah. Um, what is your role with the, the ping putter vault? Because I, I can only imagine that you're somehow – involved in the gold putter vault that uh considering you're the archive guy you probably have some involvement over there as well well when we were working on the book you know our ping book um the history the, Marty, i know you're strong put- can you pick that thing up with one arm yeah oh yeah it's seven pounds so the putter went ping when we were working on this book uh, jeff ellis that wrote the book he actually discovered a number of uh wins that we had missed and so we that did, weren't in the vault. Weren't one in the vault, mm. and we had we the player didn't have a putter either. We had just that you know, and so we we went back and tried to pick those up, and we we picked up a good number of them, but we haven't actually some of them we haven't been able to pick up. Um, so my involve my involvement over there is is pretty minimal. Um, sometimes if we need a gold putter, what's happened. In the last few years, is sometimes we need a we need putter heads to make gold putters with, and if a putter, if a player wins with a putter that is maybe four or five years old, we may not have a head, and so I've had to go on eBay and buy some putters <laughs> for the gold putter to end up in the gold putter ball. It's true technology, Jason. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, we're yeah. talking about full circle technology here, right? Yeah. Because nowadays, when when we do putters, we don't. We don't have the molds, and we can't make another one ten years later like yeah. we used to be able to. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's it's become a little bit of a problem. We we need to get those the players to always use a more current model. There you go. That's a, <laughs> a PSA for them. Yeah. Uh, Rob, when you sit in your office and you sit in here and you're here every single day looking around, what does it say about your experience with Ping? What has that been like throughout your life? Well. <sighs> I, I always tell people when they call me and they are asking a lot of questions and they'll say, boy, I really am sorry to bother you. I say, no, no, you're no bother at all because I learn, I learn as much from them as they learn from me. I really mm. do. Um, so uh, I really enjoy talking to people when they, when, and even emailing, although I'm a terrible typist, but I, I enjoy talking to people about the equipment and you know, just talking about what we're talking about today, what Karsten did and didn't do. And I'm constantly learning things about Karsten I didn't know or about Karsten and Louise I didn't know. Um, so it it is uh, it is just a constant learning thing for me, and, and I enjoy it a lot. 
Otherwise, I probably would have retired a long time ago, maybe. But well, probably not. I couldn't afford it. But, <laughs> you know. So yeah, that's that's you know. So and and sometimes you know, once in a while, Tony will come. Tony Serrano will come over and want to look at a at a putter because they're talking about making a PLD putter like it or yes. something like that. Yeah. And I I really do enjoy when people like Marty and Tony and uh, yeah. young guys come in and we I can show them this stuff and talk to them about it. One one of my favorite putter projects I worked on coming in here, Rob was working on the Dale Answer. So mm -hmm. when we we remade the Dale Answer, um, and maybe you could tell the story of the difference between the Answer and the Dale was I think in, you know, the collectors call it the Dale Head, right. otherwise known as the Dale Answer. Where'd the name Dale come from? What was that little, well, the issue on the putter? Yeah, there's <laughs> so the Scottsdale Answer. The putters, the answer putters made with a Scottsdale address. There were two masters for that, and those are sandcast putters. And there were two masters. Karsten made the first master, and he asked Alan to make the second master. When Alan was making the second master, cutting on the toe ballast, yep, the back of the putter, cutting on the toe ballast, the mill slipped a little bit. Well, he didn't want to start over, so he decided what he would do on the other side. He he made it look like the mistake and kind of evened it out and he he said that you know he, he figured when he got done Karsten would make him start over anyway. right 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 <laughs> might, I might as well lean into the mistake yeah. right and so when he showed it to Karsten Karsten said no nah, that's okay <laughs> so there's two masters uh and so any any uh putter any any answer putter uh with a phoenix address that's made from one of those masters because when they first moved to from where they were doing Scottsdale address putters, which actually wasn't in Scottsdale, but it, it was in the county, and the Scottsdale was the closest PO, uh, the closest, closest mailbox. But anyway, they moved here to the first building on our campus here. They just changed the address plate to Karsten Co., Karsten Company, mm -hmm. uh, or, and then a little later, Karsten Manufacturing Corporation. And they still were using the Scottsdale Master, but with a different address. So those putters, collectors, refer to, started referring to those as Dale heads, Scottsdale, Dale heads. Okay. Well, when we were working on the book and the story that I just told you about Alan talking about how he made the second master, John didn't know this. <laughs> I remember so well, because I asked the question, why are there two masters? And Alan said, oh, I know that. And John said, you do? <laughs> <laughs> and Alan tells a story about what happened, you know, where he made, yeah. a, made a little mistake. Well, John said, oh, your middle name's Dale. That's where the Dale head comes from. Yes. And I was like, oh, now we have a second reason it's a Dale head. <laughs> Alan Dale Solheim, right? Alan Dale Solheim. So when I was working on the Dale head in the answer or uh, Vault 2.0, we relaunched the Dale head, but milled. Mm -hmm. We came in here, got a Dale head answer, 3D scanned it, brought it into our CAD software, and I matched up every little nuance of the mistake on both sides and a bunch of the nuance there. So cool. I mean, really I, love, I love the marriage yeah. of, you know, the, the vintage club with the new age yeah. club is so cool. And I feel like, I feel like you guys have done that for a long time. It's yeah. like marrying that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the things Alan's really proud of too about his ma you know putters made from his master is that he saw Sevy someplace one time and Sevy was talking to him about the answer and and, and told Alan he'd like to get a a, a Dale head with with that what what they then called a, a flat sole mm, which was yeah. the master from Alan's Alan's master. Yeah. Sevy would like to get a master, get a answer like that. Yeah. So, uh, Alan knew that Lee McCormick, one of our sales reps, had one, <laughs> and he called Lee, and Lee gave the putter to Sevy. Literally gave the putter to Sevy. You know, sent it to Sevy. Yeah. And then Sevy uh, sent Lee a really nice letter thanking him. Mm. So Lee's Lee's got that letter. Really. You know. Uh, framed and everything, but Alan is very proud that Sevy wanted that uh, uh, answer from that master. <laughs> Sevy's got a few putters in the uh, in, in the, the vault. In the yes. vault, I've, I've I've seen him. Yeah. 
Uh, Rob, we've talked about pin collectors. Mm -hmm. So I got to ask you this as we kind of wind down. What are we talking in terms of most expensive club in this room? Well, uh, we don't like to get into value. You know, as a ping employee, ping employees actually are not allowed to appraise or okay. put value on vintage ping equipment. Now, we have some things in here that are priceless. Okay. And so the original, these two original drawings, they're priceless. Right, yeah. The, the prototype for the answer, that's a priceless item. You, you're not going to replace that for any amount of money. And then, not in here, but in John's closet, he has the first 1A which is a welded up from stainless steel. Mm. You know, again, those are priceless right. items. Like I, you know, I mentioned before, the the highest price thing I know that sold, you know, at auction was probably this trainer that yeah. sold for you know about twenty two five. Uh, so it's, you know, it's is we, we. So the answer is priceless. I priceless, feel like yeah, yeah priceless, priceless, and there's multiple items in that in that right, regard. Yeah. And all the we have all these hand drawings by Karsten, many more than this. Yeah, you know those those sorts of things are, yeah, they're just priceless. Yeah, it's so cool. Uh, Marty, you have anything else for Rob? Who are you rooting for this year, Rob? Suns or Pelicans? Pelicans, of course. <laughs> and why? <laughs> <laughs> well, my son is the uh, vice president of basketball operations for the New Orleans Pelicans. When he goes to another team, what do you do with the old team stuff? Is it like it you donate moves it? It to the back of my closet. So it stay, you keep it. <laughs> yeah, because he was he was GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers right. when they won the championship. So yeah, you can't get rid of that stuff. You can't stuff. get rid no, of No, you talk about priceless. There you go. The, That's priceless, priceless stuff yeah. in, in, in your version of this room. Right. Um, I caddied uh, years ago at, at, at St. Andrews. I caddied there after college when I got out of school. And I had a, a lady show up one day, and we're on the first tee, and she was wearing this shirt, and it had all these course logos on, you know, brand logos on the shirt. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. She was a pretty good player, hit it down the middle of the fairway, you know, 220 or something, and we went up there. We're about three holes in. I go, hey, listen, what's the deal with the shirt? Yeah. And she was like, well, Annika Sorenstein's my neighbor. And every time oh, she gets a new brand or she gets a new sponsor, she just brings all the old shirts over to me. So that's kind of paying it forward, if you right, will. Uh, yeah. Well, Rob, uh, this has been really, really interesting. I mean, this room is unbelievable. I've never been in here before. I mean, this is my first we'll see, you can come back. visit here. I, I mean, I will be coming back. <laughs> I was taking pictures of some of the lefty irons uh, over there to sell my dad because, I mean, I know he had a set of those. Uh, what are the beryllium ones? What was that? The, yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he had a set of those. Um, when I first started playing golf, I remember he had a set of those irons in his back, so I'll have to send him a picture. But we appreciate the time and the insight because this oh, has been very, pleasure. very cool. Lots of fun. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Always fun. Yeah, this is the Ping Proving Grounds podcast. Yeah.